नमस्ते वेलकम एवरीवन आप सभी का स्वागत है एंड टुडे वी हैव गॉट अ वेरी एमिनेंट पर्सनालिटी विद अस जेफरी आर्मस्ट्रांग इज आल्सो नोन एज कवींद्र ऋषि इज द फाउंडर ऑफ वैदिक एकेडमी ऑफ साइंसेस एंड आर्ट्स इज एन इंटरनेशनल स्पीकर ज्योतिषी एंड पोएट एंड ऑफ कोर्स Uh, Jyotish is one of the Vedangas, so uh, don't uh, misinterpret Jyotishi in that sense. And uh, welcome, Kavindra Rishi Ji. You are most welcome to the Jaipur Dialogues. And, Thank you, Sanjay. Uh, It's wonderful to be with you. And you have written this uh, wonderful best-selling book called Bhagavad Gita Comes Alive. so why do you say it comes alive uh, when we look at bhagavad gita it is probably the scripture that has been uh, commented upon probably the most as far as uh, i can recall uh, also because uh, in the vedanga part of nirukta all commentaries must comment upon at least three facets the adi bhautik the adi daivik and the adhyatmik so every it is said that every vedic mantra carries three meanings so i guess I, that's true for bhagavad gita as well what do you say well i thought you were going to go to what every sampradaya leader must comment upon which is the 10 principles of upanishads the vedanta sutras of vedavyas and the bhagavad gita but among those three the bhagavad gita is what i like to call the user friendly users manual for the hindu vedic civilization if you took a single text to understand comment upon and give to your children then it's the bhagavad gita and i said comes alive because during the times of the british because of I hate to call him lord I don't like using that word for a human but Macaulay made sure that Sanskrit was no longer studied and and supported so I would like to say that the Vedic translations have been anesthetized by colonization so they were using incorrect English in their translations christianized words a lot of things they shouldn't have used so all I did was clean it up but in that sense it was a sleep on the table and now it's come alive without those colonizing it's terms decolonized as you say it's decolonized all the way decolonized all the way uh, right and uh, what's the way to approach the bhagavad gita as you mentioned about sampradayas your different sampradayas have different takes some of them uh, highlight the uh, dvaita part in and bhagavad gita some of them highlight the advaita part in the bhagavad gita and some of them talk about vishishta advaita within bhagavad gita and all of them derive their principles from the same text now that makes it very confusing for the lay person that's why i said that according to nirukta because you are very knowledgeable about the vedangas where should that lead to because there is one sampradaya 
that has reduced bhagavad gita to just 70 shlokas out of 700 so um, how do we approach it that's the mini sampradaya uh, not their place to edit bhagavan i would say first of all but the second it's a very good question and the answer is the variance between lineages of vedanta none of them are wrong Shankara wasn't wrong, Ramanuja wasn't wrong, Manva wasn't wrong, Nimbarka wasn't wrong, Vishnu Swami wasn't wrong, and most recently the Swami Narayan movement also did a tika. So doing a tika is kind of an exercise to show that you have all of the core principles understood, and then there's kind of a a room for variance in the Veda that doesn't make you right or wrong. it simply is emphasis to a particular perspective and so this is where the concept of oneness doesn't translate well into english brahman is not oneness brahman is something unto itself and oneness is a concept within matter within prakriti so it takes some very careful thinking in english to grasp vedanta and this is what i've been working with to not have it cause more conflict to have it not appear sectarian which it is not but have it appear to be what it is which is the presentation of many great vedic acharyas with a slightly different angle of vision of the same truths uh, yes uh, uh, but the uh, differences can confound a lay person we That's talk about lay person needs it. Uh, lay person needs about, a guru. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> lay person needs a guru because it's confounding otherwise. Yes, uh, but we talk about uh, Vedanta within um, the Bhagavad Gita, but then it also emphasizes the Sankhya principle. Now, Sankhya, as we know, is a dualistic principle, and it's different from Vedanta. I wouldn't use the word dualistic. I would say. distinctivist because sankhya is based around na iti na iti it's telling what we're not which is not purposefully dualistic it's a yoga which points out what we are and what we're not in the land of prakriti so as if you had something on you and i said oh look you've got something on your arm let's remove it it's not you it could be a wart or it could be a piece of food from dinner so na iti that's not you so samkhya is one of the yogas because it's removing our un- misunderstanding that we are prakriti that we're from the realm of matter yes uh, but they do say that in samkhya that uh, prakriti and the purush they are separate and it is the prakriti, prakriti which is jala or which is matter and uh, Uh, the purusha is the chetana tattva or, or the consciousness yes. and it is the conscious uh, consciousness that lights up the matter and that is how the modification takes place and that is how the creation happens now uh, that uh, is interpreted by many people as a dualistic principle because uh, uh, prakriti and purush do not become one ultimately the nirvana as it takes place 
I think there's something uh, in the last shloka of the second chapter. They do mention about it. Uh, of course, you would be having it to heart. I'm not reading it. You you can recite it and tell us the meaning. Well, let's try something. I will show you a, a trick. Okay. Deny that you exist. Tell me you do not exist. Then what happens? <laughs> then I say to you, you can't deny it because you have to be in order to deny. Right. So you're confused if you deny existing. So in the same way, if you say that I cease to exist, you misunderstand the Atma cannot cease to exist. If you say I've become one with Brahman, the answer is you always were. You've just awakened to the realization that you're not from here, you're from Brahman. You're still not one with Brahman in the sense that you disappear. You're simply from Brahman, that's where you come from. But that doesn't mean you're not an individual. And this is the discussion between the distinctivist and so-called non-distinctivist Vedanta. It's not to make one wrong, it's a more emphasis upon one or the other. But translated into English, it becomes oneness and difference, as if difference means we're opposed. But they're not opposing viewpoints. They're a gradient of individuality emphasis or connection with Brahman emphasis. Aham Brahmasmi doesn't mean I just disappeared. It means I am an individual from a place called Brahman. That would be Madhvacharya speaking. Now, I was just speaking on behalf of Madhva, of the Dvaita Vedanta. Okay. He's sitting like this. I didn't say that. Yeah, this is how he's sitting. And he's going, difference is real, difference is real, difference is real. Don't deny distinctions. And that was his emphasis, you might say. And Shankaracharya? How would he interpret Shankaracharya? Uh, Shankaracharya was removing, removing the negative impact of Buddha Dharma. Buddha Dharma came about when the Brahmins were corrupt and they were causing trouble. So Buddha said, to heck with the Vedas, we're just going to go to Nirvan. The Bhagavad Gita says Brahman Nirvan, but Buddha said Nirvan, which means none of this is real, none of this is mine, I don't exist, neither do you. He, Buddha went to that, Shankara fixed that by saying, no, you're real, you're an Atma, but he stopped there because the time he was in, it was necessary to do it incrementally, and it often is historically. So I view each of the Acharyas as a part of a historical moment. They're a general and they're doing what needs to be done for the masses of people. So we then misinterpret to think they were against each other. They weren't. They were responding as a guru to a historical moment. So it's it's a very complex subject, and you're, you're managing it very nicely. But it's a difficult one for the average person because they haven't studied enough Veda. The average person, when he reads uh, the Bhagavad Gita in the, at the end of every adhyaya, uh, then uh, you have this written Om Tat Sadhiti Srimad Bhagavata Gita Supanishatsu Brahma Vidyayam Yoga Shastre Shri Krishna Arjuna Samvade Then something Yoga Nama something Adhyaya. So it uh, calls itself uh, an Upanishad, it calls itself Brahma Vidya, it calls yes. itself a Yoga Shastra at the same time, it gives you a 
what you don't say. Uh, it guides you through karma. It guides you through bhakti. It guides you through uh, kriya. It guides you through jnana. And uh, sounds like a how, user's name. How do you navigate through each of them? Because uh, it's not possible for uh, uh, anybody, for that matter. Even it wasn't pos- possible even for Arjuna to do that. He had to ultimately go through. Uh, acquire the jnana to go through the karma yoga path. So uh, how do you fix your nature and look for the uh, right remedy or medicine or guidance? Well, this is a very important question because during the time of the British rulership, first of all, Macaulay said, and listen to this quote, he said, a small bookshelf of Western philosophical texts in English are more valuable than the entire library of knowledge of India and Sanskrit. Now, of course, Macaulay had never read the Sanskrit, nor had he studied the Veda. He was just a British colonizer. But because of this, we haven't recovered yet from colonization. I consider that the moment in history that the culture of Bharat is in is a recovery moment from colonization for 300 years or 400 years or for many years. So in that recovery moment, what I did is I did not write commentary upon the verses of the Gita. I meant the commentary should happen separately because this is a conversation between Bhagavan and Arjun. And I shouldn't intercede in their conversation every five minutes and make my commentary. Better, my commentary is separate. You read their conversation and then you go to a commentary and look something up. But when the first translations were happening in English, the gurus had to put it all in one book. So by putting the trend, the, uh, purports the explanations between the verses. They set a precedent for ruining the continuity of the Gita. Most human beings can't read the whole Gita because they have such so many pages of commentary in between each verse. It would be better, and it is now possible, to just have the verses translated correctly and clearly than to have a separate commentary that you refer to when you want to look up a particular meaning. But this wasn't practical 50 years ago, because publishing being what it is. So it's important to see this in context before modern times. The recipients of this knowledge didn't have published books. We had to hand copy a book, and that was an arduous task. So it's important to remember how much of this was given to memory and therefore how important the Acharya was to the students and what a lengthy process it was to learn all the details and become Pandita. So it's not surprising that modern people are confused by the details. So what I do is I go back to the very basics. So I'll give you one example. There are four words that explain the Vedic worldview and its fundamentals. Brahman, Prakriti, Atma, Dharma, Karma, and Moksha. 
Now, if one actually just understands those words very clearly, then they won't get confused on those levels again. You could, you could add sansara, I guess. What's that? You could add sansara. Sansara. Yes, indeed. I, I have an extended list and a, a five-word list, then a 10-word list, then a 20-word list. But you're right. You could say there's about 15 or so core words. Uh, a good example would be namaste, atma, brahman, bhumi, prakriti, ritam, dharma, karma, samsara, guru, yoga, and ishvara. Okay. Yeah. So what I, what I did with the Gita was I pulled out all of the distractions. I took out all of the Christian terminology. And then I was careful with the English so that it didn't distort the Sanskrit. And this is the part that most scholars miss. Scholars in Sanskrit are still not scholars in English. That means they're still incompetent to bring the Sanskrit meaning into English because English is a very chaotic language. And most people who think they know English do not know English as a scholar. <laughs> That's quite right. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, I'll uh, labor on with the question that I asked. Certainly. I don't think I've got the reply. And that is the same thing. Okay, we have the uh, Jnana Yoga, we have the Karma Yoga, we have the Bhakti Yoga, and we have the Kriya Yoga, which is also called Radhi Yoga by Swami Vivekananda. Uh, all of them you can find here. Now, how do you relate them to the nature of the person? How does one comprehend one's nature? What level one is it in? Uh, like if you look at the uh, psychology, the, the, the Indian psychology, and you look at the uh, Sanskrit vak, and then you had the four level. That oh, you have the waking yeah, level, you have question. the sleeping yes. level, that's, you have the deep sleep. This and you true. have the para, oh, vaikari, madhyama, pashyanti, para. Then where do you, uh, how, how do you find for yourself uh, <laughs> what act, level actually you are looking at? Well, here's the beginning. This should start in grade school. The first training in school should be Ashtanga yoga, the eight-limbed yoga. Okay, okay. Everyone should Anjali, learn to breathe. Anjali yoga or Raja yoga as Swami Vivekananda called it. Well, let's be clear. It's better as Ashtanga because it's the eight-limbed yoga because you do it with your body. And it's the only yoga that you do with your body. So let's be clear that nobody in Western civilization and half the people in India knows how to breathe, knows how to maintain their body, knows how to open the nadis, and knows how to make the life force flow properly. And imagine everyone has grown up without learning those. Instead, they learned football or cricket or tennis, but they didn't learn how to embody. So the first yoga is not to be confused with anything else. It's embodiment training. And none of the other yogas teach that. But embodiment training is where the whole thing should have begun in the Guru Kula. And it did not. So first, everyone is disembodied and, uh, and embodied correct, incorrectly. That's the first thing. If you didn't learn to embody correctly, you're still disembodied. You're still disabled. 
You don't know how to use the life force, the prana. You don't know how to balance the doshas. You don't know how to move the energy throughout the system. So this part of yoga was a given in the training of all the people who went to Guru Kulas. And the Guru Kulas were girls and boys separate, so they weren't distracted by the obvious distractions between the genders. And they first learned to embody correctly to the extent they were able. And then they were ready to move on to the next steps of the different kinds of yoga. So I would propose there are basically four. Jnana yoga, karma yoga, bhakti yoga, and ashtanga yoga. Okay. Those four are summarized the different ways it's done pretty well. So the next is, if you're a brainchild and not very embodied, after a certain amount of embodiment training, you'll want to go on to scientific learning. So jnana yoga will become the next development, and that'll happen automatically as your education increases. Simultaneous with that, You'll be doing activities. So there has to be a status quo of consciousness. And this is the heart of the Ashtanga Yoga is Tapasya, Svadhyaya, Ishvara, Pranidhan, Kriya, Yoga, Ha. According to Patanjali. We must do Tapasya. We must know ourselves, Svadhyaya. And now we must develop Ishvara, Pranidhan, so this means we need to know all the devas and devis, all the ishas and ishtas. We need to know who's running the show in nature. And finally, we're going to learn how to act within prakriti without going against dharma. And to stay in a particular state of awareness of ourself as who we are, that doesn't get contaminated by our actions within matter, within prakriti. And bhakti is the icing on the cupcake. Bhakti is the final step of extreme ecstatic emotions that are not directed toward matter, which allows us to express our individuality in the ultimate sense. So there's a lot of confusion between these yogas as if they're competing they're actually just the same practice in different functionality modes and in different types of person. Each person is more adapted to having emotions or not, to being intellectual or not. So these methodologies, again, would be chosen carefully by the guru and adapted to the individual. And that's where Jyotish comes in. Jyotish is the map of the karma of this lifetime. And an acharya would know the Jyotish of their disciple, of their student, and would also consider that as they helped and advised them. It's hard to do a quick summary of this, but that's close to it. So how, how would you translate Jyotish? Not as astrology. No, Jyotish is the science of light. Jyoti means light. And so this is where the process begins. Ombur Bhuvasvatat Savitur Varenium I am like the sun in the sky. So if we divide this up, the departments of my being are each run by a department head called a deva or devi. And these are the navagrahas. The navagrahas are the functional departments of our functioning 
body-mind complex had their nine departments. The sun rules one of those, the moon rules another one, Venus rules another one. So Venus rules are sophisticated, artistic, aesthetic interactions in the world. Mars rules are dominance and uh, push-pull assertive actions in the world. Saturn, Shani rules are scientific and sophisticated relationships with matter. So when we can see this, this Samkhya, this science, allows us to know that each person who's born is born in a particular vehicle. It's interesting that the word karana in Sanskrit gave rise to the English word car. <laughs> so the body is our car. Mm-hmm. Sanskrit karana. So that's a, a brief answer to the question. It's a science and it's based on astronomy as the basis. And on a side note, this is why Nilesh Oak, if you remember him, has done a great job with this, showing that in the Ramayana and Mahabharata, which can be dated to about 7,000 and 14,000 years ago, because of the astronomy in their texts, Nilesh has shown this very profoundly. And so it's astronomy that's the basis of Jyotish. And mathematics, astronomy, and the Sanskrit language have been around for much longer than the Western world would like to admit, at least for 14,000 years back to the time of the Ramayana. And that's astronomical, not philosophical or projection. Yes, but Nilesh Oak's theory is also seriously disputed by many people. Well, the, the fact that the data is in the Mahabharata and Ramayana can't be disputed. The implications of the data can always be discussed. But the fact that those are the only two texts in the world that give astronomical dating for themselves in the most perfect language in the world. So it's pretty credible, at least as the most perfect in the world. And if anyone wants to challenge that, I've got the time. Because they will lose, because Sanskrit is the most perfect programming language in the world. And there is not another language on our planet that comes even close. And most people don't even understand this. They haven't studied linguistics or programming enough to know. I worked in Silicon Valley, so I understand what it takes to program a computer. Now, what most people don't know is the binary mathematics, the Boolean logic that's behind that came from the Rig Veda. But this is because most people are not literate enough to conduct these conversations. It's, It's over their head already. But if it's conducted from this level in the Vedic culture, at least we'll begin to stand up for Sanskrit where it really stands in the world. And I know you're doing this, and I congratulate you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but that uh, uh, AV verse, that uh, Arundhati Vashishto verse, its translation as done by Nilesh Yog, that itself is disputed. How do you look at that? Yeah, there are many different ways. And if we had time, we could discuss them. This is what pundits and, and uh, persons deeply interested in the Veda do. They discuss all these details. But those details are important. But the most important thing is that the world doesn't know that Sanskrit is the oldest language and most perfect language. Oldest and most perfect, I said, not just the oldest. Who cares if it's the oldest? But if it's so perfect that it doesn't deviate over time, then the message of 15,000 years ago or 7,000 years ago is still the message that was given at that time. And this is unprecedented. This doesn't exist anywhere else on our planet. 
and yet is totally unknown to almost everyone on our planet. And that's colonization. That's Macaulay being successful. We're still behaving as if English has the goods and Sanskrit's not useful. And until we stop doing that, then Dilesh Oak is close enough for me because that's the thing we've got to get across. And I know you're doing it and that's what I'm doing. It's standing for a worldview that has been avoided like the plague during colonization and still has not been revived. I call what we're doing the Vedic Renaissance. And so that's why I so applaud you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's discuss the 11th chapter. I find it very intriguing. Oh, me too. Yes. How how do you explain that uh, vision that was shown to Arjuna? Well, the Virata Purusha. It's one of the mysteries, isn't it? Because in the 11th chapter, Arjuna asked a very interesting question. He said, could you please show me, show me how you enter into everything? And this is a very important question because Bhagavan appears to be a person like us. He's avatar. He's descended to earth, but he's actually the Parama Purusha. He's actually the ultimate being, source of everything. Aham Sarvasya Prabhupada. So Arjuna says to him, hmm, if you really are what you're saying, how do you enter into everything? I think the most interesting part about this is, do you remember the German scientist who quoted this? When the first nuclear bomb went off? Oppenheimer. Yeah. He quoted the Bhagavad Gita and he quoted the chapter 11 and he said, time I am. (laughs) So Arjuna was so frightened when he saw the Virata Purusha that he was, he was a Kshatriya. He doesn't get afraid of anything. He was just shaking and trembling and saying, Oh, who are you? What, what is this? I'm frightened to death. So when the first nuclear weapon was tested in America, something that America should be very ashamed of, but nonetheless, when they did that, they released something that resembled chapter 11 of the Bhagavad Gita. And the nuclear scientist who was responsible for helping to make the bomb was from Germany where they studied Sanskrit. And he quoted chapter 11 of the Bhagavad Gita. So it's like that. If we were standing near a nuclear explosion, we would be so terrified and so humbled and so shaken to our core And this is exactly what Arjun felt in the presence of Bhagavan. Now, the transition that you're referring to is so beautiful. So first he showed him his power manifestation, all-pervasive power. He showed him his nuclear bomb self. And then Arjuna was terrified and said, please show me your friendly form. And then we saw a, like a step-down transformer. We saw Bhagavan go from that. Oh, he says, you want to see that one? And he steps down and steps down and steps down to user-friendly Bhagavan. So he's just showed us 
his power, but that's not very important between you and I, he says. Sure, I'll come back to user-friendly Bhagavad. And that the Bhagavad Gita shows us this is massively important for the times we live in. Because this was presaging the event of nuclear power. We've now seen the physical equivalent of what they used to call Brahmastra. And some yogis had the power to release that kind of energy on a pinpointed basis through mantra. These are great secrets. And it's difficult to talk about them in a short amount of time. But chapter 11 is the key to the relationship between the Supreme Being as all-powerful to user-friendly. And user-friendly is the default setting for the Vedic culture, not all-powerful. The Abrahamic religions are just pointing to the power. Jesus is the supposedly user-friendly part, but there's no knowledge. And he is an extra in the movie. But power has been used in the Abrahamic religions to frighten everyone into submission. In the Vedic culture, power was pointed out, but beauty and the qualities of Bhagavan that are approachable and beautiful are what has been used for the everyday practices. So we haven't been frightened into following. We've been delighted into following. Okay, yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a very fair distinction you made, and um, uh, yes, and uh, then there are actually the topic that we have uh, kept here today is how to approach the Gita, and uh, you mentioned bhakti is the icing on the cake, yes. but then uh, it is also said that. Uh, Bhakti is also the easiest path because uh, all it takes is to, you know, uh, and it is also advocated for the masses. That is, uh, as your intellect rises, or in other words, if you use Patanjali's words, uh, as your chitta vritti becomes stronger, your fortifications of your to become stronger and you become more differentiated uh, then you require certain other things but then if you remain simple and straightforward then bhakti is the way for you well would I you would just relate it to the waking state if you're in the waking state or in the uh, vakari state then bhakti is for you would you say that No, I would not at all. I would say that if you're an amateur, everything is difficult. You can't be an amateur scientist, really. So Samkhya wouldn't work for that person. And action, real action, is beyond most human beings. The kind of actions that heroes like Arjun and Bhima and Yudhisthira performed, or, or Draupadi, those actions are beyond the everyday person, so they don't really understand those either. So the everyday person doesn't understand anything, frankly. That's the point. So any, but any one of those methods will work for them. You can give them a little knowledge and they'll get by. You can guide their actions with moral care, with moral guidelines, 
Or you could say that, oh, bhakti is user friendly. But the fact is, it's much more difficult to have the huge emotions of bhakti in a correct form and to go to the highest states of ecstasy. And so that's what bhakti is about. It's not about the sloppy everyday emotions that silly humans feel. It's about taking emotion to its highest potential and going to the most ecstatic state without that destabilizing and becoming tamasic and harmful. Now, the real question with bhakti is how do you have the highest possible ecstatic state of emotion without becoming insane? That's the real question. How do you go? How do you go? How how do you do that? Yes. Well, first, you have to be stabilized enough at your core so that you don't mistake extreme emotion for chaos. Chaos is a destructive force. And if you're not careful and you have extreme emotions, you may not see the people around you. You may disrespect them and you may become a fanatical organization. I won't mention any names, but we know that some have in a state of ecstasy, even taken guns and gone out to force people to follow them. So ironically, they thought they were in a sacred state of ecstasy. But they also then became violent. So in bhakti, you have to go to the highest states of ecstasy without harming yourself or anyone else. And you cannot then become totalitarian and force that upon people. Instead, you must be an example. To do that, you must remain completely wildly ecstatic and yet well-mannered <laughs> and polite and respectful and not force your viewpoint or your ecstatic state upon anyone. So this is the irony of bhakti is hardly understood because it's so beyond the everyday experience of humans. It's not sloppy emotions that commercials that are, are appealing to it's the ecstatic states that are truly our potential that the rest of our emotions are a mere reflection of it's like the difference between true art and sloppy drawing between as shakespeare said methinks the lady doth protest a bit too much from sloppy human emotions to the most ecstatic highest states of emotion that's bhakti Okay. Uh, I'll request the viewers to ask their questions to uh, Jeffrey Armstrong because it's not every day that he comes to the Jaipur Dialogues. And uh, you can ask any question. Don't uh, think that your questions are not good enough. Any question is good enough because I'm all, uh, also asking anything that is coming to my mind. And uh, now I'm going to the seventh chapter. And the seventh chapter, Jnana Vigyana Yoga. Uh, this is 16. Shloka 16. Chatur Vidha Bhajante Maam Jana Sukrita Norjuna Arto Jigyasura Artharthi Jnani Chabharatar Shabha Now, Bhagavan himself makes a distinction the quality of uh, uh, people who worship him say that there are four kind of people who worship me and uh, one is uh, who is uh, into trouble art and the other is uh, who's uh, wanting something artharthi 
or the, the person who's actually the transactional person, uh, the kind of people who do business with the Bhagawan. And th- there's one Jigyasu, the seeker, and the fourth one is the Gyani. And now he says the, in the next uh, that uh, in the next shloka, seventeenth, that uh, I love the Gyani the most. Now he's himself making this distinction. So how do you reconcile that with what you just said about bhakti and uh, other things? Because he's himself saying that uh, Gyani. Uh, I'll read out 17 as well. Tesham jnani nitya yukta ek bhaktir vishishyate priyo hi jnani no atyartha maham sacha mama priyaha. Yes, he actually says that those who go beyond the acquiring knowledge stage, but ikabhakta become single-minded in devotion to me. So it's when their jnana has led them to bhakti rather than them skipping the jnana and trying to jump to just emotions. This is a mistake that many yogis, many persons trying to be yogis make. They try to skip to big emotions in bhakti without first becoming samkhya, without first becoming jnanis. And so Krishna is delineating that it's necessary we have a saying in English, true love is different than infatuation. Okay. True love means I'm dedicated to your well-being. I'm not selfishly in love with you because I'm overwhelmed with you. So infatuation is not the purpose of bhakti. It's the beginning of bhakti. And confusion is the beginning of jnana. And sorting out the confusion ensures that our bhakti will not be cluttered with ignorance and misplaced thinking and incorrect thinking. So it's the prerequisite to bhakti is being able to think clearly and control your emotions. And only then, step by step, as a science, not in a sloppy human way, do we go from the jnana to a state of bhakti. I think it's ironic and interesting. Ganesha, who's the, the symbol of the Yana process, has two wives who were sisters, Budhi and Siddhi. So yeah. Budhi and Siddhi shows us something very interesting, that this whole process begins with Sanskrit. So the Budhi must be there. But if you can't do that, you can start with bhakti, but only if you're very careful and guided by a guru. You don't want to be unguided if you don't know Samkhya. So there's, this is why the guru is so necessary. But it's everyone begins with the Samkhya. But if they begin with the bhakti, that's the most dangerous thing. So Krishna puts the jnana before the bhakti. The verse you pointed out is very instructive in that. Thank you. Okay. Uh, before we go to the audience, uh, I have another question for you. And uh, in fact, two questions I'll ask before we I love go your to the audience. 
and this is uh, the second chapter and these are the shlokas 45 and 46 okay shall i read it out or should should i just read out the meaning basically i am reading from the geeta press translation right now not from your translation or you want me to read from your translation i have it in front i have it in, on the screen though i can search it out okay let me see contents chapter 2 chapter chapter 2 okay go to chapter 2 right i have got it verse 45 okay here we are so chapter five, I'll, i'll read out your translation the vedic rituals are mostly concerned with the three gunas and with managing our relationship with matter to achieve temporary material comfort o arjuna redirect your desires from this acquisitive hunger for superficial pleasure instead free yourself from duality be true to your atma and live in the world as an immortal being uh, carrying on 46 just as there is no need to dig a well when fresh water is flowing everywhere the one who knows the pleasures of brahman the transcendental realm beyond matter from where we come does not need to seek material pleasure separately through means of the vedic rituals so uh, does it mean that uh, vedas are not really necessary that would be ironic to use the vedas to say the vedas are not necessary kama artha dharma moksha there's an interesting paradox that you're pointing to very very useful this is that we humans are here with an animal nature first because we've just come from being an animal so whatever knowledge is given to all of human kind is actually given to a gradient of beings who start out just above the animal level but in human form and then there's a hierarchy as they go up from life to life they go beyond their animal nature if they're going upward in a gradual process and if i could point out just something the rest of the world is for the most part immersed especially the abrahamic religions and modern science in a one lifetime world view so your question right. is very profound because it assumes many many lifetimes and we've already heard about that in the earlier parts of the gita before we get to this place dehi nosmin yada dehi komaram yovadam jara we can't die this is so critical because we're in a curriculum I call the universe the university. We're in a university. We're going from classroom to classroom, body to body, 
and we're here gathering experience and moving up the chain of possibility and going through the entire experience of being within Prakriti. And according to the, the data, as you know, there are 8,400,000 species. That's how many classrooms we've been in before we become human. The numbers are somewhat boggling. But every species of life that exists, we have been that. So as we move on in embodiment, the human body allows us to go beyond embodiment. And a great number of the verses in the Gita are trying to help us to grasp this evolutionary process and how to take the last few steps of that evolution. But not everyone reading the Gita is ready for that. So we have to keep them on track, help them move to the next level, step by step. So this is what Bhagavan is doing. But then he's descended to earth in order to show everything. So he's got to show the advanced knowledge along with the beginning knowledge, which requires some further understanding. So the easy way to say this is in everyday language, most of the listeners still will have material desires that they're acting out in the world. If those are tamasic, they're in trouble. If those are rajasic, mixed bag. If those are sattvic, they're making progress because they won't be degraded by those desires, by their material embodiment. So verses like this are addressing this process of gradual evolution and the refinements of that at each of the higher stages. The lower stages, it's mostly getting rid of our animal nature. But the more refined we become, then the more qualified we are to enter into the higher realms of existence, even while we're still embodied here in the realm of matter. And this is very subtle, and only the Vedic culture has really done this, that we can bilocate, we can be here, and be living within matter, but we'll minimize our demands upon matter. We will no longer think of it as our source of pleasure. It's just to stabilize it. This is what the Acharya does. They stabilize matter, and now they're obviously getting all their satisfaction from an invisible source. And so for the other humans, they act as the role model someone to emulate who is no longer addicted to any experience within matter as the source of their ecstasy. And this is the conversation you pointed to. And it's you're right, it's brilliant. It's a very important discussion. And it's the heart of the human discussion. And yeah, Krishna... Quite, quite right. Okay. Actually, uh, I think it's there in the Mahabharata in a later part uh, towards the end. Uh, I don't have the exact reference where uh, somebody asks Krishna because it is said that whatever the conversation that took place on the battlefield, nobody else could hear it. So everybody was curious as to what was going on. Arjuna was the only one who was privy to it. So somebody even uh, asked Krishna at a much later date as to what he was telling Arjuna on the battlefield. So he told them, well, I didn't tell him anything. Did I tell him anything? 
<laughs> they insisted. They said that was for Arjuna. Arjuna, Arjuna was the special person who was fit to receive it. Adhikari. Adhikari. And uh, therefore, we need to become Arjuna first to be able to receive this wisdom. Don't you think? Absolutely. In fact, you've guided us to something very important. And that is whoever asks us a question, we should ask them a few questions to establish what is their grade level in the conversation? What is their adhikari? And then find a way to very skillfully and respectfully and carefully take them to the next step, not show off and go where we can go, but act in their service. Think of it as a seva to give them the correct answer that feeds them the next thing that they need to be fed. And this is what the more we're under the guidance of acharyas, the more we understand this principle. And so it's very wonderful that you've led us to it because it's feeding the right food to the appropriate at the appropriate moment in the right amount. And it's a very sophisticated process. And the Vedic culture developed it to the PhD level, to the highest possible degree. Quite right. And uh, my last question, uh, this is the last chapter, 18th chapter, 63, where after telling everything, Krishna gives the choice to Arjuna and tells him, and then he goes on to, and then Arjun surrenders himself to Krishna, and then Krishna takes charge. And he says that, okay, all the things, manmana bhavamad bhakto madhyaji maam namaskuru, maame vaishyasi satyam te pratijane piyosi me, and Sarvadharman Parityajya and so on. But uh, 63 is the one that uh, actually leads to it. The, it's interesting that you chose that particular verse. Because he's giving the secret of secrets, isn't he? Right. If I could back us up two verses before that, because I'm a Jyotishi. Yeah. I'm particularly fond of this one as well. I'm the supreme being who's the ruler and director of all beings. I live in their heart. And he's called Hari. The yeah. heart is called Kridaya. That's right. And modern medicine calls a heart doctor a cardiologist from the Sanskrit Hridaya. Cardia is from Hridaya. So this, and he says, all beings revolve yantra arudani mayaya as if they were attached to a machine that turns them around and round. And is this not the Ferris wheel of samsara? This is the machine that turns them around and around. The yantra is their astrological birth chart. 
which is actually a yantra. It's a picture of the sky at the moment of birth. And the merry-go-round that they're on is samsara. And they're revolving on that. So this pivotal place in chapter 18 is exactly that. And so the last secret he re- he showed led him to say, and now I'm going to tell you the final secret secret of all the secrets. So it is in an understanding from the perspective of samsara so that one is Mahatma and can see the whole journey and see the whole of what Bhagavan is explaining on scale. But we humans can't do that if we're still distracted by what we want. That's all we think about. That's all we see. So this knowledge is taking us light years beyond our selfish, what I want posture and showing us this secret of secrets. And then he goes on and doesn't he? And he says, now listen again, as I share with you, what is Sarva Guyatma, the most secret and confidential teaching. But Hari means the one who removes everything that is inauspicious and shouldn't be there. So this is Bhagavan explaining to us that he's in our heart. You might call this the heart surgery of the Bhagavad Gita. Okay. It's the place where our heart gets fixed. Right. And now we know that this is heart medicine. And until that happens, we're still not quite hearing what Bhagavan has to say. That's the kind of bhakti that we're being led toward. Not a screaming ecstatic bhakti. A soft, amazing, more loving than anything we could imagine. Lifelong, life-to-life friendship. Well, something like what he says in 7.17. The, 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 the bhakti, bhakta who is also a jnani. That kind of bhakti. Absolutely. It's with your eyes wide open that you're madly in love with me. Not crazy fanatic eyes closed. And this is the beauty of, of the Vedic wisdom. And it is why Mahatma, I think, the final word. Mahatma is one who has become Mahaatma by associating with Bhagavan as a friend. All right. Wonderful uh, question, uh, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, now we can take audience questions. We are almost on the hour. So I think it's time to go to the audience questions. Uh, viewers, I would request you to please share this talk widely. Also like this video because it helps in recommendations. And also please subscribe to the channel and support the channel. Questions, please. Questions on the screen, please. 
Okay, I think there's some problems. So I'll read it out. I'll read it out. The first question is from Robakul. And he's asking, Pranam, sir, please explain how Prakriti, which he translates as mundane material, Purusha, Atman, and Chetana, consciousness, relate. Is Purushu, Purusha same as Chetana? Thanks. The mystery of us as an Atma and Bhagavan as Param Atma and Prakriti as something that we can manipulate in small doses, in small amounts, but not entirely. Interestingly enough, it's us trying to manipulate Prakriti and become its ruler that is the addiction that we're experiencing as an Atma. And it's changing our focus from dominating Prakriti to being in the service of Bhagavan. That is, I love this word, it's reorienting. This is the secret of the Orient, of Bharat, to reorient your motivation to the service of Bhagavan and therefore the service of the evolution. So consciousness and Purusha, if we're Purusha, then we're not the Parama Purusha, but as Purusha in nature, it's giving up our dominance over Prakriti and instead reacquainting and regaining our relationship with Bhagavan that cures us of the misuse of our chetana as a way to dominate Prakriti. Okay, next one from the same gentleman, Robakul. The question now he's asking is, does Sri Krishna say Prakriti Purush are all his energies? If yes, he is the Purushottama, who is the souls are part and parcel of, or can any soul merge in Purushottama by raising its consciousness? And this is where English lets us down. <laughs> okay. <laughs> As I said earlier, So I'll say it once again, listen very clearly to this, because it's at the heart of the Vedantic discussion. Entering into does not mean merging with. It's seen from a certain perspective. If you go through a door and to the viewer, you disappear. It doesn't mean you cease to exist. It means you no longer are visible to them. So we do not merge into anything. Because merging is ceasing to exist. And we certainly are not going to all this trouble to then just cease to exist. That's idiotic. If there's nothing that it's leading to, why do you do it? Who cares? If it's leading to an empty 
merged condition. And this is what I want you to understand about English. The word is not merge. Because when you merge, you're no longer an individual. So did you go to all this trouble as an individual to merge and cease being an individual? Or did you just go through a portal and go to another level of individual interaction? If that wasn't the case, why would we have rasas with Bhagavan? Why would there be different flavors if you were no longer being an individual and you were just merging? Isn't that the Dvaita interpretation? Well, it's actually not Dvaita, it's Vedanta. You cannot... Dvaita Vedanta, let's say. No, because you cannot get rid of the individual. it's, It's true that at a certain point it becomes Dvaita. But no one can deny the individual or there wouldn't be even the linguistics to do so. The individual is what we're trying to work with. But what we call merging is a different experience. Becoming the same as is not merging. So what I'm explaining is that English is a problem. Vedanta, you are never different. So not because again, different is an English word. It's the it's the English words causing the trouble. Merge and non-dual. Again, dual is just two. It doesn't help because what we're actually trying to describe is achintya. You can't describe it within prakriti because prakriti doesn't have the tools to do so. So there would not be bhakti if the individual disappeared. Let's be clear. There would be no radha, no gopis. The whole stay in Vrindavan would be pointless and useless if we were just merging. You can merge with anything. But bhakti is a different state and it's not a merging and it's not a disappearing. It's a sophisticated state that we don't have material words for. And this is where the Vedantists themselves didn't try to use English to explain these things. They use Sanskrit, which has the nuances to do so. When you bring it into English, it flat out becomes wrong. They didn't have that problem. English does. So this is a new proposition that I'm introducing into this conversation because it's assumed by people using English who know Sanskrit that they're using the correct English word to describe the Sanskrit. In fact, they're not. Because without an etymological dictionary, they're using standard usage and standard usage in England, English is illiterate. English is good at object words and terrible at meaning words. So just meditate on this. This is part of the dilemma. It doesn't have anything to do with the Vedantas. They were talking in Sanskrit. It has everything to do with bringing it into English. That's never happened before. And English is the colonizing language whose meanings all came from Christianity. Okay. Okay. Shall we go to the next one? Yes. Varun Sharma. Of course, the previous one merits a whole discussion on Dvaita and Advaita. Varun Sharma, sir. When you started reading about the Sanatana Dharma and the Vedic culture, you must have felt skepticism 
that would have made you to not believe in it what made you believe its legitimacy interestingly enough what i had skepticism about was my own culture because it wasn't asking these questions i was more skeptical of that than i was of a culture that was asking them so i was never skeptical of the knowledge of india i already had studied i had several degrees and i'd mastered quite a bit of knowledge at the university level before i encountered the vedic vidya so by the time i encountered it i was bored with and not satisfied with western civilization english latin whatever they had to offer christianity islam judaism i'd studied them all very carefully and respectfully and they just didn't satisfy or answer my questions so the fact is there's no other civilization in the world that has presented answers of this sophistication of the sanskrit knowledge coming from the veda so to me i was a kid at a candy store i walked in and here were huge amounts of profound thoughtful answers to all the questions that no one else in the world was addressing so by that time i was the hungry entrant into a beautiful prashadam festival where feasts of simply unequaled flavor with the no rasas like that in any other culture were available to me and so i've been the hungry child in the beautiful kitchen of shakti ma ever since okay next one darshan parab bal gangadhar tilak wrote his commentary on geeta geeta rahasya and proposed that the core intent is to promote karma yoga as that is what bhagwan did to arjuna what are your thoughts well there's two answers i would say to you on the one hand yes because the bottom line is we're still here and we're still acting and that's why it's called sanatan dharma so to a certain extent we're going to put it into action and arjuna is certainly doing that but remember arjuna is a kshatriya the mistranslation of kshatriya is hurt and protect it's actually protect and if necessary hurt it's not hurt first it's the kshatriya is someone who doesn't want to hurt anyone but who does not want to see the innocent be hurt the number one thing that the kshatriya wants actually is to feed everyone if you remember when yudhisthira and the pandavas went into exile daumya gave a mantra to yudhisthira for the akshaya patra so he could feed everyone in spite of being in exile so this concept of karma yoga again karma yoga at the level you're talking is bhakti yoga bhakti actually selfish bhakti is i only care about my ecstasy but true bhakti is when my ecstasy makes me want to make my full-time job to remove the distress and pain and suffering of others because i feel it so deeply 
So bhakti is not selfish emotion with Bhagavan. In that sense, what he's saying is, if your heart is filled with love, will you not be doing seva to everyone who you possibly can? And the answer is, yes, you will. And this is also how a bhakti speaks. They don't speak like this. You should learn this. They speak like this and like this. I have something to share with you that's very beautiful. So if you call that karma yoga, and karma yoga after bhakti is karma bhakti yoga. And it's a different animal. Okay, next. VK. Dear sir, thank you for the Bhagavad Gita comes alive and for refining our understanding of the Gita. Yadyada charati shreshtas tata devi taro sayat pramanam kurute lokas tada nivartate. Oh, yes, that's one There's anything beautiful in me, it is coming from my teachers from Bharat and the great Acharyas who've carried this knowledge forward. I am just their servant trying to be of some useful service. So thank you for your kind words. Uh, VK again. Is it more Vishishtatvaita? It is all of them. I have a little saying about this I think you'll enjoy. If you had seven uncles who were all billionaires and they were on a private jet together which crashed and they all were killed and they all left you a legacy, which legacy would you not accept? (laughs) So, although temperamentally I have a favorite flavor, in practice I never say that any of the great acharyas were better or worse than each other. First of all, who am I to say such a thing? An outsider pulled out of the muddy water and given the nectar and ambrosia of the Vedic knowledge. Secondly, their conversation is so advanced, I sit and listen, and they're way beyond me. But last of all, because they didn't say that about each other. Right, next. So this is what I've done in the Bhagavad Gita that is unique. Instead of it being from a lineage and being adversarial and just trying to grind that axe and say that's the right one, what I really did was pull back from that as an adversarial sectarian conversation and presented the Gita by clarifying it, by removing the inappropriate Christian words, by using the most crucial Sanskrit words that everyone must know and have a vocabulary of, And then by not making my purports be the gist of it, or even my lineage, to me, I have all those lineages from my uncles. I read them all. They're all in my library. I love them all. And I see the beauty and truth in each one. This is how Vedanta should be appreciated. And I'll end with something, one of my favorite stories. Ramanuja Acharya, this is a famous story about him, the Vashishtadvaita Acharya. In those days, they would have debates for 18 days at a time, like the 18 Puranas. And they would bring the Acharyas together from different schools so everyone could listen and hear the distinctions. So he had been debating with his Advaita opponent 
for 17 days. And at the end of that 17 days, on the 17th day, his Adoita opponent just slaughtered him, just reduced him to ashes, totally brought him down in terms of arguments. He was a brilliant, brilliant scholar of Shankara, and he just slaughtered him. So on the way home, there was one more day to the debate the next day. Ramanuja was so exhausted, he went to a temple and then fell asleep while he was offering obeisances. And he woke up in the morning in that same spot in front of the deities of Bhagavan. And he got up, went back to the debate. But now he was in an ecstatic mood from being in the presence of the deities all night long. And he'd gone into another state of awareness. And as he was sitting there in the presence of his opponent, his opponent got up, walked over, and Dandava went flat down to Ramanuja. And he got up and said to Ramanuja, in our debate, I won. But by what you're showing us, the ecstatic symptoms that you are showing us is what every one of us wants. You've achieved them. Nobody shows the signs you're showing without having achieved them. And everyone wants that more than anything. So you win the debate. A beautiful way to end a discussion that could be adversarial. It's an embrace. And it's not an argument. It's not a debate. It's an argument. You know the word? I'll end with this. It's in my Gita. The argue word is from argentum or silver. And it means to use a cloth or to rub silver until it's shining. This is what Sanjay does. This is what I do. We do not go out in the world and debate the Vedas. We rub the cloth softly on the edges of the silver so that it will shine brighter. We hope that everyone will shine brighter because of Vedic Vidya. That's a great question. and Thank you. Beautiful answer. Next. Adi, uh, in the Kali Yuga, which could be highly described as Bhautak life and utterly surrounded by materialism, how one is supposed to have focus, sheer determination and knowledge of Dharma? I am not Arjuna. I, <laughs> I think I ain't Arjuna was uh, worthy of saying. Oh yes, I ain't Arjuna. I ain't Arjuna. He, he's, <laughs> he's speaking Texas talk, he's speaking Southern, you know, I ain't Arjuna. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, let me just say that if the battlefield of Kurukshetra is all around you, then perhaps that would it it would uh, impel you to become more like Arjuna, because you see how valuable it is. Think of it this way: Yadyada Charati Shreshtas. So, whatever you've achieved, just speak it lovingly, speak it respectfully. Speak it kindly. Show as an acharya. Teach by example. If the world destroys itself in our generation, then that's beyond us. But we can be the ones who cared, the loving voices in the midst of it, the one who teaches by example as an acharya. So what an opportunity we have right now. So yes, Kali Yuga is either a big problem, and it is, but it's part of a cycle. But a big problem needs to become what? 
a big opportunity. So yes. So now embody Dharma in the worst historical moment we've seen on history for a while, the most dangerous and precarious. And who knows, maybe your example as an Acharya and others like you, together, maybe a lot of small voices will simply bring us back from the edge of the precipice of destroying one another. We can hope that. And if nothing else, then that's your last life. And if you get to be of some seva like that, in your last life, lucky you. So, Okay. Next. And by the way, I ain't Arjuna either. This is the last question. You can take this one. Okay. Uh, if Mukti means a Jivatma stops associating themselves with the body, does it mean this association was wished by the Atma sometime and due to cyclic nature, they may wish so again despite attaining Mukti? Well, just think of Prakriti as autopilot and Mukti as going off autopilot. Because the process of working our way up through the animal species and becoming human, we become preliminary human, but not sophisticated human. So think of this again as a curriculum. So at the PhD level of being a human, you just don't have the desires left that you used to have. You're no longer driven by the drives that you were driven by before. And so if you're also learning the Vedic Vidya, then Moksha doesn't mean quitting. It actually means being of seva. And that's what you're seeing with myself and Sanjay. We haven't quit. We've just decided that there's nothing here that we have to have. And instead, we'd like to dedicate all of our time to being in some service to others by sharing what could be the missing vitamin in their life. You could think of people who are teaching the Veda as distributors of vitamins, because that's all we want. We don't want to force anyone to do anything. But we know there's a shortage on the shelves at the store of these vitamins, and so we're dedicating ourselves to sharing those vitamins with the world. So don't make it complicated. The world is, but you don't have to be. So keep right. it simple and keep it clear. And you'll find that it's not as complicated as it might have looked at one time. Quite right. And with that, we come to the end of the questions and answers. And we thank all the audience, all the people listening to us. And we have to thank uh, uh, Jeffrey. Thank you so much. Jeffrey G, as we thank say you, in, uh, in Hindi. Jeffrey mm-hmm. G ko bhoat bhoat dhanyavad. Jai Hind. Vande Mataram, Jai Shri Krishna. Jai Shri Krishna. I usually begin with this, but Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu, Guru Deva Maheshwara, Guru Sakshat Parabrahma, Tasmai Shri Guru. Om Shanti Shanti. I spoke only on their behalf and was grateful for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Good night from here. And to you. 